The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. On May 21st, 1738, Charles Wesley lay seriously ill in bed, fearing for his life. But as he lay there fearing for his life, he feared more for his eternal soul, because at that point he had no assurance of salvation. He and his brother John had been pursuing a religion of Christianized good works and morality. They were part of a group called the Oxford Holy Club, and they sought to earn their salvation by good works, by mission trips, by other things, but they had no assurance of salvation. Uh, They only had ever-increasing anxiety about eternal hell and destruction, and so for almost two years they sought this assurance. John and Charles Wesley had been on a mission trip to the New World, and on the way back they were in a serious uh, storm with a group of Moravian believers, and they saw the supernatural joy and peace and confidence, even in the midst of that storm that those Moravians had. They had absolutely no fear of death, but that could not characterize the Wesleys at that point. And so they began to study the religion of the Moravians, who often spoke of the testimony of the Holy Spirit to the soul of a genuinely converted person. The Wesleys had seen that supernatural peace during that storm, and they longed to know it, a total freedom from death. The Moravians linked that sense of assurance to the promise in Romans 8 and verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. But they had not experienced that testimony, that assurance at all. If anything, things just seemed to get worse and worse for them until that day, May 21st, 1738, for Charles Wesley. Ironically, Pentecost Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, uh, commemorating the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. Charles Wesley had been fighting for his life against that illness, but also pleading with God for assurance of salvation. As he lay alone in his bed between visits by his brother John and doctors and well-meaning friends, Charles had a personal encounter with God through the outpoured Holy Spirit that changed his life forever. Assurance flooded into his soul. He felt strange palpitations in his heart, and he cried aloud, I believe, I believe. And he wrote in his journal that day, I have now found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in the hope of loving Christ. Now, his more famous brother, John Wesley, would soon have his own conversion experience at a prayer meeting on Aldersgate Street there in London. Though John Wesley would become the leader and driving force of the movement known as Methodism, Charles Wesley would become the movement's poet and hymn writer. He wrote over 6,000 hymns seeking to put the theology of Christianity in lyrics that illiterate people could understand easily. Seven months after his conversion, Charles Wesley was walking through the streets of London on Christmas Day. He heard the bells ringing, celebrating the birth of Christ. He hurried home and wrote the poem that would become, arguably, the most celebrated Christmas song of all time, now known as Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which just by chance we happened to sing a moment ago. Isn't it funny how those things work out? Now, the original poem that Charles wrote was, Hark how all the welkin rings glory to the King of Kings. Now, welkin means heavens, 
A number of years later, in 1753, the greatest Methodist preacher of them all, George Whitfield, changed the lyric to what we know today. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Well, that improvement is well appreciated. Uh, it's already a challenge to have one obscure word, hark, uh, meaning listen, an even more obscure archaic word, welkin, would probably have sunk the hymn for good. Uh, but the heavens were indeed ringing with the praise of an angelic army the night that Jesus was born. We can obey the word hark to listen to their celebration only by faith, faith in the word of God. There is a listening of the soul with the ears of faith that we must do to be able to listen to them celebrating. And there's a seeing to see the incarnate Christ laying there. There's a seeing we can only do uh, by faith, faith in the word of God. So the call to listen to the angelic praise is a doorway into my Christmas meditation uh, with you today. I want to trace out over all of redemptive history, even before history began, angelic worship of Christ. Angelic worship of Christ. My purpose is not that we will merely hark to angelic worship of Christ, but join with them in understanding the greatness and the majesty of Jesus Christ, and that God's will may be done on earth as it is in heaven through that worship. Hebrews 1 makes it plain, when God brought his son into the world, he wanted the angels to worship him. Hebrews 1.6 says, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, this is an amazing statement, if you think about it. It's an open claim to God of God concerning the deity of his son. For the scripture makes it plain that God commands all worshiping beings, angels and humans, to worship him and serve him only. Worship is reserved for God, and yet here's God calling on the angels to worship his son when he brings him into the world. And that is proof that the son of, of God the birth of Jesus is a matter for worship. This is deity coming into the world, and the angels complied. Now, I want to trace out more fully the history of angelic worship of the second person of the Trinity and follow it in historical or order in nine steps. First, angels worship the pre-incarnate Christ. Second, angels announced the coming Christ. Third, angels celebrated the birth of Christ. Fourth, angels protected the newborn Christ. Fifth, angels strengthened Christ in his weakness. Sixth, angels announced the resurrected Christ. Seventh, angels celebrated the heavenly ascension of Christ. Eighth, angels assisted in the spread of the gospel of Christ's kingdom. And then ninth, angels will celebrate Christ's glory for all eternity. First, angels worship the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, Christ alone, of all human beings that's ever lived, made a voluntary choice, a willing choice, to enter the world as a human being. He's the only one that that is true of. And he made this assertion to Pontius Pilate when he was on trial before Pilate in John 18. Jesus said to Pilate, you are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. In other words, I chose to enter the world. And I chose to enter the world to build a kingdom based on truth and to invite people into that kingdom of truth. That was a choice that Jesus made. He's the only human being that ever was pre-existent before he took on a human body and chose to enter the world, and that is to build a kingdom of truth. So also this statement in John 6, 
Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Same thing. I chose to enter the world, not to do my will, but to do the will of the Father. And this is the Father's will, that, he sa- that I save all the elect that he has given me. So Philippians 2 makes it plain that Jesus shared eternal glory with God on a heavenly throne of glory before he entered the world. He had equality with God, a radiant glory with him. That's what Charles Wesley meant when he said, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. So before Jesus was born, the angels saw that glory and they worshiped him in his glory. Two key passages show this in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1. First Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 3 says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now the Lord, the seraphim, worshiped was Jesus. For John 12, verse 41 makes it plain that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. The seraphs are angels, an order of angels, of spirit beings. Uh, the word, the Hebrew word, literally means burning ones. So they're like on fire. They're, they're brilliant. They're bright. Uh, this lines up with the statement made of them in Hebrews 1.7. In speaking of his angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. And so the seraphim are burning ones. They're on fire a holy fire. This fiery terminology also lines up with the vision in Ezekiel chapter 1 of cherubim, uh, fiery beings that almost defy description and who move mysteriously below a throne of glory. Ezekiel 1 says this, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in that fire was what looked like four living creatures. So picture a cloud that is radiant and bright, and in the center of it, it's, it's like on fire, a fiery cloud. In the center of that are these four living creatures called cherubim. Now, these cherubim have four faces and two sets of wings, um, and they, there are these high, mighty, awesome, glorious wheels under them, wheels sparkling like diamonds, And the cherubim move like lightning with fire flashing back and forth among them. Again, Ezekiel 1, 13 and 14, the appearance of the living creatures were like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. I mean, it's energetic, crackling with energy, crackling with with light and fire. And the, the cherubim moved north, south, east, and west with lightning speed in whatever direction the spirit moves them. Now, high above those cherubim sat the enthroned pre-incarnate Christ. Ezekiel 1, 22 and following. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome, like a barrier, like a ceiling. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. And when the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. 
When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. This is awesome. They stood quiet under the voice of the one seated on the throne. There's a reverence that they have and a quietness. They lower their wings and they wait to hear him speak. They're ready to do his will. They're motionless. They're reverent. They're waiting on the voice of the pre-incarnate Christ. And this is the description of that glorious throne, Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, says Ezekiel, I fell face down. So you have this angelic activity, moving wheels within wheels, just defies description, and brightness, and, and loud noise, and power, and then a barrier, and then high above that, a throne, and one seated on it. And that barrier represents the infinite gap between creator and creature. It's an infinite gap between God and the highest archangel and all creatures below. And that gap represents uh, that, that, that difference, the holiness of God, God the creator over all creation. And they recognize it. And they are quiet under it. Now, Ezekiel the prophet was granted this vision of the pre-incarnate Christ on the throne of heavenly glory. This is the glory that Jesus laid aside when he entered the world and was born of the virgin and was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. This is the glory he laid by. This is the glory he wanted back at the end of his ministry when he said in John 17 and verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the creation of the world. It's a glory he deserves, a radiant display of his greatness, which he laid by. And so, before Christ was even born, the angels, in various orders, of various types, worshipped and served him. Secondly, the angels announced the coming Christ. Now, the word angel is just a transliteration of a Greek word, which means messenger. Uh, those that are dispatched with a message from God to earth. So, God... Regularly in the Old Testament, dispatched angels to bring messages from God. And so also at the time of Christ being uh, conceived, the angel Gabriel was dispatched. Now, the angel Gabriel told in his encounter with uh, John the Baptist, Father Zechariah, he said, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. He has the honor of pro proximity, of closeness to the throne of God. That's Gabriel. And he is sent uh, also to the Virgin Mary with the most amazing message that any angel has ever carried to any human being. Luke 1, he said to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of David forever, or house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So this is a message that Gabriel spoke to Mary, the deepest theology ever communicated in the pages of Scripture. So Mary, you will have a baby. And the baby will have no human father. It will be conceived miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit will overshadow your body. 
And that's where this baby is going to come from. This baby will be the son of David. He will have a genealogy through you and also through Joseph. And he will be rightly called the son of David. He will be human because he is your baby uh, and also descendant of David or the house and lineage of David. But he will also be divine because he is called the son of God. This is the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the virgin birth. It's central to our faith. Jesus Christ was born in the, in the normal way, looked like any other human baby that was born, but he was conceived by the supernatural power of God on a virgin's body. And so this doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus being fully God, fully man, is central to the Christian faith. It was initially announced by an angel, announced by an angel to Mary. The angel was also dispatched in a dream to Joseph, the guardian of that holy family, to give him a different version of the same message. Matthew chapter 1, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the angelic message to Joseph concerning this baby's mission is a little bit different, easily harmonizable. To Mary, it's he's going to reign on a throne forever. To Joseph, he's going to save his people from their sins. And we know that that's by his death, his bloody death on the cross. But the theology of the essential nature of who this baby is is the same. I mean, fully God, fully man is wrapped up in the word Emmanuel, God with us, conceived in a human mother, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, the angels were dispatched to carry this message and the theology of Jesus Christ to Mary and to Joseph. Third, angels celebrated when this baby was born. They were there to celebrate the birth of Christ. This is the most famous angelic involvement. Uh, Angels were sent to Bethlehem the night that, uh, that Jesus was born, and they were sent to worship him. This is the direct and obvious fulfillment of God's command in Hebrews 1.6. When God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And so they came to do that. Direct obedience to the command of God. First, an angel, a single angel, was dispatched to the shepherds on the hills outside Bethlehem, as we already heard. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Again, angels are given a role of dispensing theology to human beings. But this time, it's simple working-class shepherds who are just out there at night watching over their flocks in the hills surrounding Bethlehem. Suddenly an angel comes with heavenly glory, a radiant display. This is one of the key texts for me to understand that glory involves sometimes physical light, a radiant display. And so it is, this angel came with the glory of the Lord that shone around there at night, and it caused instant terror. The angel gives the message that Christ the Lord is born in Bethlehem. He is Christ, he is Lord, he is Savior. These terms are initially understandable, They immediately take root in the heart of any believer, but they will take all eternity to unpack in their fullness. And so the shepherds understood these words. The simple proof of the angel's words was the oddity of seeing a baby wrapped and laid in a feeding trough for animals. That's highly unusual. 
So when you go down and you see this baby wrapped up in swaddling clothes, that will be a sign that our words are true. Then, suddenly, a huge multitude of the heavenly host appears. A great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now, this must have been what Charles Wesley and George Whitfield had in mind when they wrote, Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Well, God told them to do it. it, says, let all God's angels worship him. And they did it with gladness and with powerful voices. Now, I want you to understand a word that is easy to misunderstand, and that is the word host. I asked some people earlier this week, what is a heavenly host? And they said, well, when you host somebody, you're opening up your home. You're welcoming them. Friends, that is not what host means here, all right? So it's not like the angels are saying, hey, you all come. I know I'll never say it like you guys do. Y'all come, sorry. Um, Opening up and saying, I want you to come and enjoy. That's not what's going on. It's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word is stratia, which is a military term. This is an army. This is a huge army. So imagine how that would have looked to us rebels against heaven to have a heavenly army arrayed in military weaponry surrounding us, it really would be terrifying. It's not a choir of angels. It's an army of angels. And if you want to see the kind of damage they can wreak on planet Earth, read the book of Revelation. And the kind of damage that they wreak gladly when God tells them to do it, pouring out wrath on the ecology and on the people of Earth before the second coming of Christ. It's a heavenly invasion, but not that night. Though they could have done that kind of damage because we all deserve it. We're all rebels against the throne of God. They were there to celebrate the birth, effectively, of our and God's champion who came to fight on our behalf. And they're there to celebrate as he went forth, as David did in the day when he defeated Goliath. He is the representative of heaven and of us, the people of God, to fight our battle for us. And they're there to celebrate. And there's lots of them. It's not a little. It's a huge army. They're not there to to invade rebellious earth and destroy it like we all deserve, but they're there to proclaim glory to God and peace from God to those on whom his grace or his favor rests. And that's the message. So this is the same army of angels that will be dispatched in waves in Revelation to destroy all sinners at the end of the world. But at this point, they're there to celebrate the birth of the Savior. Fourth, angels protected the newborn Christ. God also dispatched an angel to warn Joseph in a dream to flee the murderous King Herod and his killing soldiers. Matthew chapter 2, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child's mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So an angel was dispatched to Joseph in a dream to say, get up and take the child's and his mother and flee to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. And so they escaped just in time before the soldiers came and killed all the boy babies, two years old and under. And then later, once Herod was dead and uh, the danger had passed, the angel came and told Joseph to bring the child back. Now, certainly angels protected Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus at that point. 
But I'm certain that angels protected Jesus throughout the 30 years that he was growing up. The demons knew who he was. Satan knew who he was. And yet, he lived a normal uh, upbringing. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. He grew up. He was a carpenter. And when the time came, he was revealed um, out of obscurity by John the Baptist. But all of that, there must have been a wall, an angelic wall of protection around Jesus as he was growing up. Revelation 12 depicts the devil as a dragon ready to devour the male child who will rule over all the world the moment it was born, but he couldn't do it. Fifth, angels strengthen Christ in his weakness. During Jesus' life on earth, he was subjected to all the same weakness that we are, pain, weariness, hunger, thirst. And at two key moments in Jesus' weakness, his physical bodily weakness, angels were dispatched to strengthen the king of angels. First, after his temptation by the devil in the desert. In Mark 1.13, it says, he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. So it's an amazing thing how Jesus, the infinite king of glory, was so weakened by his fasting that God had to send angels to keep him alive and to feed him out in the desert. Second, in his agony in Gethsemane, in Luke 22, it says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, we cannot fully understand what was happening in Gethsemane as Jesus was fully aware that he was about to drink the cup of God's wrath in our place on the cross and to shed his blood in our place. God, I believe, mysteriously revealed to Jesus' human mind what it would be like to be under the wrath of God, and it just about killed him, dropped him to the ground, and he was flickering, and an angel was dispatched in some mysterious way to strengthen him to survive that moment in Gethsemane as great drops of blood were pouring from his face. So it is a marvelous and an amazing thing that this infinite king of glory needed help, physical help from angels at those two times. Six, angels announced the resurrected Christ. After Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, angels were sent from heaven to tell his followers that Christ had risen just as he had predicted. In Matthew is an angel that came down and rolled back the stone and sat on it. I've always loved that picture. He is very comfortable in the presence of Roman soldiers. He's not afraid of them at all. They're terrified of him. And he just easily rolls a massive boulder and just sits on it. And it's just a beautiful picture, but he's there announcing the resurrection. Same thing in John's gospel. You have two men dressed in white sitting in the empty tomb where Jesus' body had been, one at the head of the other at the, at, the, at the feet. And then in Luke's gospel, the same thing. As women went to finish the burial rituals that had been hurried because the, the Passover was coming, it says in Luke 24, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Now, angels are not usually dispatched to proclaim the facts of the gospel, of Christ's death and his burial and his resurrection, though they would do an amazing job. Ordinarily not, but here at the very beginning of the spread of the gospel, after the resurrection uh, of Christ from the dead, angels are dispatched to tell his immediate inner circle of followers what had happened. Seventh, angels celebrated the heavenly ascension of Christ, the heavenly ascension of Christ. After Christ rose from the dead, he spent 40 days with his disciples, giving them many convincing proofs that he was alive, 
and training them and teaching them and getting them ready for the, the spread of the gospel worldwide to the ends of the earth. So after that, after he had given all of that proof, at, at the end of that time, 40 days, he ascended from the surface of the earth up through the sky, through the clouds, and uh, uh, ultimately into the heavenly realms. Now Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us that he passed through the heavens, plural, through circles of heavens. So higher and higher, first the, the atmosphere, and then beyond all the physical realms of, of heaven, what we call sky and outer space, and beyond that into the circles of heaven, the heavenly uh, uh, spheres of existence in the spiritual realm. He passed through all that. The, the author of Hebrews gives us the language of passing through. And the, the scripture reveals that as he did, the angels celebrated his passing as a triumphant conqueror. In Psalm 47, it says, God has ascended amid shouts of joy, and the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. So it's a marvelous picture we get of the angels celebrating the accomplishment of the, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. I also think it's interesting the angels were dispatched to tell the disciples to move along now and get on with their lives as they're standing there outside Jerusalem with their heads craning up and they're looking and they're waiting for the second coming of Christ 2,000 years ago. And so God sent two angels to say, time to move along. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Eighth, angels ascended the spread of Christ's kingdom. As I just said, uh, scripture does not assign to angels the work of evangelism and missions. The ministry of reconciliation has been entrusted to us, the followers of Christ. That's our job. It is our work to go to the ends of the earth and to proclaim the gospel. As the scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, but it's not angels that do it. However, angels have consistently assisted that spread as they were dispatched from heaven to do. For example, in Acts 8, an angel working along with the Holy Spirit told Philip, the evangelist, where to go so he could proclaim the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch. So we can see angels dispatched to guide evangelism and missions in Acts 8. So also, uh, God dispatched an angel to rescue Peter and the apostles from prison in Acts 5, and also Peter from prison in Acts 12, causing chains to fall off and making the 12 soldiers guarding him to fall into a deep sleep. So also an angel was dispatched to Cornelius the centurion uh, to tell him to send men to Joppa to find a man named Peter who would bring a message by which he and all his household would be saved. And so the angel was not dispatched to give the message. He could easily have done it, but instead to send messengers to get Peter to come and do it. And so it was angels that did that. So in heaven, we're going to find out throughout thousands of years of redemptive history, how active the angels have been in the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? They have helped the spread of the gospel for 2,000 years. Ninth and finally, angels will celebrate Christ's glory for all eternity. As I said, before Christ was born, angels worshiped and celebrated. All along, as redemptive history has unfolded, we're told that angels were learning. They longed to look into these things, Peter tells us. First Peter 1.12, even angels longed to look into these things. They weren't omniscient. They didn't know where all this was heading. And so they were learning as events were unfolding. 
As we see, for example, in Daniel 12, one angel asks another angel about timing and timetable. They don't know when the timing is going to be for all of these things. So they're eager to learn, and they are learning as events unfold on planet Earth. And as those events unfold, they celebrate them, like at the birth of Christ. They're celebrating. It's not like they didn't know it was coming, but now it's broken into history, and they are celebrating. They're tracking. They're tracking events unfolding, and they're learning, and they're celebrating with pure hearts. And I believe that they're going to celebrate when all is said and done for all eternity. They're going to celebrate what was done to rescue a multitude of sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation. They're going to celebrate what God has done through the second and the third person of the Trinity by the working of Jesus' blood shed on the cross, by his resurrection, and by the outpouring Holy Spirit on the people of God, the spread of the gospel, the angels are going to celebrate every detail of what happened for all eternity. In Revelation 5, 11, and 12, it says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000, 100 million angels. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So there's a hundred million angels celebrating the, the slain Lamb who by his blood rescued people from God. Just as it said earlier, you are worthy because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You're going to celebrate that, that radiant glory for all eternity, they're going to celebrate. We wouldn't even know about it except that God had dispatched an angel to John to write the book of Revelation. As it says in Revelation 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So an angel was entrusted with the book of Revelation to bring down to John in the island of Patmos. And then he says it at the end of Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony uh, for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and I am the bright and morning star. So angels will be worshiping and celebrating Christ's victory at the cross for all eternity. Revelation 7, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and, land, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They're wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne to the Lamb. The next verse, All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So the angels are celebrating a redemption they didn't need. It wasn't for them that Christ became incarnate. Surely it is not angels he helped, but the sons of Abraham, us, flesh and blood. And yet the angels are celebrating with every bit as much joy as if it had been them. And they're going to celebrate it for all eternity. So, what about you, friends? What about you? It's Christmas. We here at First Baptist Church do not believe in a secular Christmas. We believe in Christ at the center of it. We want to join in that angelic worship and celebration. We want to see who this child is, this incarnate Son of God. And we want to join the angels in celebrating. What about you? What about you? I understand at Christmas time, it's a time for people to go to church, maybe with family and friends. And my desire is that there'd be no person listening to my words today 
who would be in a lost and a dying state. All you have to do is hear all of this truth that you've been listening to of who Jesus is, of why he came, of what he did at the cross, and of how God raised him from the dead, and understand it is by simple faith in that story that you will be forgiven of your sins. There is no reason for anyone in this room to end up perishing eternally, to be terrified when that army does invade and punishes the rebels who never would yield to God and to Christ. There's no reason for that. So all you need to do is cross over from death to life, simply listen and hear, like hark, the herald angels sing. What are they singing? Glory to the newborn king. See this incarnate deity laying there. See in that your own salvation. And if you are already a Christian, I want to wish you all a wonderful Merry Christmas. You're going to enjoy time with your family tomorrow, but as you do so, let's bring Christ right into the center of that time. I don't know what your, what your traditions are, what your habits are, but in our family, we love to read Scripture as part of our celebration, to, to talk about the actual facts of the birth of Christ, of the gospel. Choose some Scripture and read it together with the people that you're with. Make Christ the center of your celebration. Close with me now in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time of year in which we get to focus on a vital detail of our Christian faith, and that is the incarnation of Christ, the giving of the God-man, the birth of Jesus as the Savior of the world. Uh, We needed Christ. Uh, It was a rescue mission. Um, As the angel said to Joseph, you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Lord, we need that. We thank you. I pray, O Lord, that you would be working deeply in the hearts of people who hear this message that they would believe and trust and follow you. And for all of us who years ago did, Lord, pray that you'd renew our faith and help us to celebrate as the angels did. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.